The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Walking Dead we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Hello and welcome to Slate's Walking Dead podcast. I'm Mike Volo, senior producer here in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New York City is Chris Wade. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. Episode 16, Conquer, the final episode of the season. Chris, you watched this in a bar in Brooklyn with, I don't know what, 50, 100 of your closest friends or closest strangers. Yeah, I was posted up in a soda bar on Vanderbilt Avenue in Mm -hmm. um, Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, doing some work in the afternoon. And just as I was getting ready to shut down, I kind of looked around me and realized that in an hour, a screening of Walking Dead was going to take place. So I just stuck around and watched it with some friends. Uh, And as I did, my plum working seats turned into front row seats as this place just filled up with people. You know, I've mentioned offhandedly in this podcast that I don't understand (laughs) how this show continues to be the most popular cable show in America. Yeah. And it was uh, really interesting just seeing the energy and excitement and enthusiasm in this room as it really filled up to bursting. It was a a packed house for this season five finale of of this show. So it was nice to get a little injection of that communal enthusiasm. Plus, I'm just a big fan of watching shows and groups in general. Uh, I think it turns it into a a fun little party. So I always enjoy bar screenings of of any of my event TV. Yeah, that sounds like a blast, especially compared to the way I typically watch it, which is alone on my laptop, or I should say always watch it, which is alone on my laptop. Especially this kind of show and this kind of blend of of horror and action, it's just very heartening to hear a whole room of people go, oh, at once when, you know, somebody, some zombie gets their head squished. Yeah. And was it a vocal audience? Yeah. People were into it. I loved this episode. So I loved this episode way more than I thought I was going to love it. And in the cold open, the return of Morgan, who we have long been awaiting because we had little clues that he was going to show up. He is waking up in the backseat of a car that has a lucky rabbit's foot hanging from the rearview mirror, which seems to amuse him. He builds himself a little campsite in the woods and prepares a packet of dehydrated food. Sea rations, perhaps. Yeah. And serves himself up a little breakfast, which is interrupted by a gun-wielding, forehead W-sporting young guy who, when asked by Morgan what the W is for, gives him this convoluted historical backdrop. You know, the first settlers here, they put bounties on wolves' heads, brought the natives into it, made them hunt them. Didn't take them too long to kill them all. They're back now. Thoughts? So who in this metaphor is the hunter and who is the huntee? Because both the men who fashion themselves wolves, right, have the W on their head, who are these sadistic hunters, and the people that they're hunting, the walkers and others, whose heads they carve with Ws. So it reminded me of that episode of Seinfeld when Kramer was disaffected with the post office and boycotted the mail, and he built himself an effigy of a postman and put a bucket over its head. 
And people were like, well, what, what's the bucket for? And he's like, because we're blind to their tyranny. And they're like, well, then shouldn't you be wearing the bucket? <laughs> <laughs> this whole W thing got confusing for me because I was like, well, wait, why is everybody wearing W's then? Yeah. Who's, what separates the W's from the, the W haves and the W nots? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mainly took away from the, this person that he was crazy and afflicted <laughs> by some kind of cult-like indoctrination. I imagine that going forward, since throughout the episode, the wolves are set up as the big bads, ha, pun intended, for next season, yes. that will have a lot of this kind of rambling, sadistic life view foisted on us in long speeches with very slow zooms on diabolical manic eyes. But... I, yeah, I'm not quite sure if I get their whole central metaphor here. Perhaps they're saying something like, for, for long had these manic ubermensch-type people been hunted and ostracized by society, and now that society has collapsed, they will be the ones that do the hunting? I don't know. Perhaps we're, the message is we're all wolves? Maybe. A W for everybody. I loved this cold open. I thought that this cold open was precisely the kind of open that The Walking Dead does best. It had, for me, the excitement of the return of an, an old character who is now a new character again, Morgan. I mean, we have only seen Morgan four times, something like that, including this episode. Mm -hmm. In the very beginning, two seasons later, when they see him in his insanity compound. Right. And at the very end of last season. And that was even a brief glimpse. So other than that, this guy is very, very intense and very studied at this world around him. We don't really know a whole lot about him, though we are immediately engendered to him through his badassery. Yeah, yeah. And his his demeanor really is attractive in precisely the way that Gabriel's is not, right? Yeah. Calm, determined, yeah. specific, precise. Competent. Yeah. So the cold open just really, really worked for me. And the entire episode, especially the latter half, which I thought was just a brilliant building of intensity shifting back and forth between scenes. Uh, you, not so much? You liked it as well? Nope. I thought no? that uh, <laughs> given uh, the great arc of the last few episodes with some very skillful ratcheted up intensity that made us question whether our protagonists were really the good guys in this story anymore and then whether or not we actually cared, I felt that the last half of this episode was kind of a huge cop-out that totally sidestepped the conflict that it had been alluding to up until that point to basically undermine all the other questions it had raised by just saying, no, yeah, they're still the best. Okay, let me see if I could defend what they're doing in this episode. First of all, in the latter half of this episode we get these shifting kind of interwoven scenes between the meeting where Rick's fate is being decided in absentia because he's too Out busy. saving everybody's <laughs> lives. He's too busy saving everybody's lives, right? Interwoven with scenes of him doing that, scenes of Glenn overcoming Nicholas in the woods after being shot in the shoulder. And so on the one hand, we're seeing at the meeting people speaking up in favor of what Rick said the day before, but not necessarily how he said it or how he presented himself, but the truth of what he said, right? Abraham stands to testify. Maggie stands to testify. Carol, in her 
still in her character as... In her becardiganed way. ...sits. I don't think she was standing. She sits to testify. What this whole sequence reminded me of was the baptism scene in The Godfather, not to liken The Walking Dead to The Godfather, but as Michael's child is being baptized and he is being asked by the priest, you know, do you believe in God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost? And do you renounce Satan? Meanwhile, we're seeing that interwoven with scenes of the five heads of the rival families being killed. It's a juxtaposition where the one belies the other. Precisely the opposite is happening here. We're seeing that the scenes of Rick and of Glenn are lending evidentiary proof to the testimony in the meeting. And so I think what happens for me at the end of this whole buildup is this very satisfying realization. And for me, I had to forgive some of the incredulities of the plot line itself, which was, you know, how did these incompetent people manage to survive so long in this very pristine little neighborhood that they built for themselves? That aside, it arrives at what is ultimately true, which is that Rick is right. Rick knows that there are greater threats out there and these people are not aware of them and they're not planning adequately and they're going to die if they don't actually become more competent than they are. I see your frustration. I see that you wanted the core philosophical difference between the two of them to be resolved in some way and this felt like maybe a papering over of it. Yeah, and it's also, I think, just more interesting and dynamic to continue to force the viewers to question the motives, sincerity, sanity of the protagonists five season of a whole group of the protagonists five seasons into a show where we've largely been on their side and every decision has been justified in some way by the needs for survival. And one of our editorial assistants here, Laura Bradley, was talking in a meeting the other day about kind of this whole arc to Rick's character where the at the very beginning we see him kill Shane for basically espousing the same kind of hardline survivalist viewpoints that he himself is now espousing to these other softer people. Like if you remember all those Shane speeches from season one and two where Shane's like, you don't know what it was like when you were out, when we were there on our own, we had to do things that didn't make any s-. You know, that, that same kind of speech that he's now saying back, that's a really interesting line. And to, you know, force that viewpoint on the viewers, I think is great. And then to basically spend an entire season questioning, I mean, it's typical to Walking Dead and typical to my faults with Walking Dead to spend an entire season making us question this very baseline reality about our hero, about Rick, and then in the finale of the season be like, nope, those questions are irrelevant. Well, two things. One, I do remember those speeches from Shane, but a lot of time has passed. And Rick may not agree with the Rick of two years ago. Yeah, of course. And I think that that's interesting to watch a character slowly over time get to a place that he at one point thought was unacceptable. Right. Enough to incur homicide. Well, okay. And that brings me to my second point, which is that I don't think that I have put aside my reservations about where they are mentally or philosophically right now. I think that there are bigger fish to fry, perhaps, in the immediate future, which is the wolves, and that Rick is 
actually correct when he says that you guys need to be better prepared. You need to learn stuff from us about how to survive. You need to learn skills that you don't currently have about how to fight, about how to handle weapons, about how to forage for food safely, not like a bunch of idiots who are going to like get us all killed. Yeah. These are all things that are true, right? That, however, doesn't erase the fact that a lot of the group is suffering still from PTSD, as we've mentioned, and that they are mentally unstable, some of them. Clearly, Sasha is. She has a death wish at this point, like a literal death wish. As does we now see Father Gabriel. Yes. I, I guess I, another point, and I also agree with you that, that the actual construction of this episode is elegant, and they're doing a great job throughout the season some of the best work ever. I've complimented a number of their their sequences of just like constructing, you know, visually and storytelling-wise how these episodes flow. It's just that making in one neat package, in one well-executed package of an episode, the group's decision over the last half of this season so completely vindicated at every level. Like Father Gabriel turns out to be more of a danger to the community than he was hinting that Rick is, you know, Rick eventually has to save everybody from Father Gabriel's lackadaisical, suicidal (laughs) inability to close doors. Sasha is somewhat redeemed by sparing Gabriel's life. Glenn is, overcomes his battle with the homicidally petty Nicholas. Like at every point, every conflict set up between these people who had already been here and the group that we have known is totally resolved and vindicated in their favor. And I think that, you know, even Pete at the very, you know, in the last minute of this episode, wanders in, slashes a guy's throat open with a sword, and then is totally justifies his own execution, even grant that wish granted by Deanna, who is totally against that. Well, the guy whose throat he slashed with the sword was Deanna's husband, Reg, right? So, mm-hmm. of course, she might be calling for his execution at that point. Yeah, but I think for an ongoing drama of this nature, I guess it all boils down to me feeling that there's constantly a little too much of that sitcom-like resolution where at the end of every season, even though their situation may not have improved all that much, all the questions, the thematic questions that the season raised are kind of tidied up and resolved in a way that I feel constantly pushes The Walking Dead into a place where it's starting new seasons kind of thematically flailing around trying to figure out what it what kind of show it wants to be. And like over the course of its run, this has been sometimes more apparent than others. I mean, for its first four seasons, it had, I think, four different showrunners, like almost every season. It's a new show with like a new location, a new set piece and a new big bad that they're trying to follow. And Mm -hmm. I think the continual impulse to resolve these issues and questions means that when we start next season, in which now they're going to have to all band together, I mean, you know, the Rick group have been proven right (laughs) across the board. So what is now the lasting tension between them and, and the Alexandrians? Where do we come back in? Why do we still care? Is there a conflict between that and why do we still care? Any conflict that the Alexandrians have, given this storyline premise, is now like, well, you saw what happened when you tried to oppose our unilateral rule over you. Doors get left open. We can't have doors open. I understand your frustration. I, in general, share that frustration. I think that the bread and butter of The Walking Dead and the reason it's very popular is not because it's 
an intelligent talky show because it's not. Even when it's trying to create a thoughtful dichotomy between one way of viewing this post-apocalyptic world and another as it tried to do this season, it doesn't do so in a very subtle or nuanced or particularly erudite way. That's not what makes this show, I think, viewable by however many millions of people. Well, I guess, but I wouldn't underestimate the public in general. I just think that this kind of of over-resolved ending, it's just like, you know, it's a little deflating in the end. And I, I feel like if you kept some of these questions untied at the end in a more broad way, then we wouldn't have to keep moving from season to season where really the only question was what is that season's threat, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. Where by at the beginning of next season, we don't really have any lasting thematic storyline or character storyline from this season. All we have is them in a new location with a new structural threat. Maybe that's too much to ask from The Walking Dead. But on the other hand, I... It's your right to ask. I don't, th- I don't think so. I think that that's like reasonable and would actually you know, keep the show more engaging and l- feel like less little discreet chunks... Maybe it's uh, uh, hearkening back to its comic book origin because each season of The Walking Dead kind of feels like a trade paperback of a ongoing comic series where it's like a collection of comics that tell one discrete story mm-hmm. and you pick up the next one and, and it's the same characters and like roughly the same situation. But that collection of 12, 15, 20 issues of the comic deals with one discrete story and kind of at the end of that, there's a walk into the sunset moment. Yeah. You watch Lost, right? I did, yeah. I loved Lost. That moment when Rick walks into the tribunal where they're like, all right, when they're just about to be like, all right, let's take a vote of whether we should ban Rick. And he just comes in, walks in with a walker and plops it down. It reminded me of a moment early in the run of Lost when when Sawyer has a line that's like, see, you thought we should get rid of these guns. And guess what? I just shot a goddamn bear. <laughs> yeah. I just killed Here's a walker in your – yeah. yeah. Here's why you need me. Yeah, it's yeah. Just laying the proof at their feet. You know how – see how I would have liked to go go on this? It's almost like instead of just like killing this thing and dropping it at their feet, getting Rick to the point where he's deranged enough to like maybe capture this, this walker live. Do you capture a walker live? Capturing this walker. Undead. Undead and like leading it into this tribunal and being like, this is your threat. And if I'm not here, I let this go into your – like that's kind of where I felt Rick had been moving towards this season. And the kind of thing where he might be selfish enough or deranged enough to be like, I am to be here with this threat being like, I am the thing between you and this thing. And if you make me go, I literally and symbolically let this threat loose upon. Like, that's the kind of more effed up way that I saw this series progressing. And then it just seemed to be like pulling back so hard in these last moments. You know? Yeah, but then perhaps we wouldn't have gotten that scene that was the parallel, if you will, to the, the scene in The Godfather during the baptism scene when Mo Greenberg gets shot in the eye on the massage table. The oh, parallel when, when, when Rick is gouging out the eyes of this walker and like crushing its skull and it almost seems like it's screaming with some kind of anguish. <laughs> I've been enjoying that there are a lot more, like, blunt objects are a lot more effective on killing them because you can just kind of, like, mm-hmm. smash a walker's head like an overripe pumpkin. Yeah, I mean, Morgan has, what, a broomstick? Yeah, something like that. And it's totally effective. He, he gets through. Well, yeah, let's move on to the the other, like, 
arm of this episode. Yeah. Let's get to Daryl and Aaron, who are out on the trail of what they assume is some sadistic person who has tied up this woman that we saw to a tree and come upon a food warehouse of some sort. A canned food depot? Only to discover that it's actually a booby trap, essentially. There we go. Yeah, a really elaborate booby trap. So they walk into this canned food depot and see a bunch of semi-trucks ready to go that say, like, canned food on the side and go to open one of the backs of these trucks and some kind of impromptu mechanism goes off that opens four trucks that are just packed full of walkers and they're immediately swarmed and surrounded. They manage to fight their way to a car and get inside and it's a real all-is-lost moment. Yeah. And they've been a great pair for each other and kind of a surprising pair of these two guys who feel out of step with society in general and more at home when they have a direction, a purpose, when they're on the hunt. Like even just given their style, you kind of doubt that they would have been friends from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's kind of the... um, I think you described him as the L.L. Bean catalog guy. Yeah. Especially given Daryl's particularly uh, racist and prejudiced theoretical family backstory. Yeah. Uh, You might not think that he and the gay guy would be the best friends, but they really seem to get each other in a not-too-wordy way. Like, they kind of have that, like, knowing bro-nod friendship of, like, oh, oh, we, we have the same tinted glasses on, you know? Yeah, it was a little bit of that, like, quiet, unspoken, Brokeback Mountain sort of, well, without the gay sex the companion companionship yeah that's the second time we've seen a a nice relationship with this like like him and carol that have unspoken like i get you yeah quality and norman reedus is really really great at imbuing this steely character with a lot of unspoken soul oh i mean i think that's why the great majority of the walking dead viewership would rise up in actual (laughs) revolt if they ever killed off daryl because He's the kind of character that every viewer wants that relationship with, right? Yeah, and you can kind of aspire to be him, to Mm -hmm. have that resolve, that selflessness, that bravery, that skillfulness. If not be him, then be the person in whom he confides. Like in that scene in the car, he tells Aaron, you know, it's funny because... I felt so, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't remember exactly what he said, said, I felt so pent up and claustrophobic in Alexandria, and I felt like myself out here and here in this car surrounded by walkers, I still feel more like myself. Yes, absolutely. And he trusts him enough and believes in him enough at this point to volunteer to be the sacrifice to get one of them out of there. And it turns out that neither of them need to because Morgan... Broomstick fights through this horde. Right. How did do you think Morgan was tracking them? How did he know that it was worth wading into two dozen walkers to save these people? I don't think that that was ever made clear. Well, he said something like all life is precious or something, right? Didn't Aaron ask oh, yeah, him yeah, yeah, why? Yeah. He knew that somebody was in that car because he saw that it was surrounded by a mob of walkers. And yeah, he said something like that, didn't he? Yeah, he did say, I think, literally, all life is is precious or something like that, which is, you know, a nice foreshadowing to his reuniting with Rick upon seeing him execute somebody. Then just to finish up that little segment, we then see later 
the people who are the wolves kind of resetting this trap. And I think that we saw on the side of one of these semi-trucks that they had spray-painted wolves on it, which, I mean, I don't know why you would do that. I guess we're trying to guess the overriding philosophy of this group long before we know really anything about them. Mm -hmm. But I did just like this little resetting of the trap at the very end where they turn on the music from inside these semi-trucks and kind of lure all these walkers back in and then reset the whole thing and you kind of get the shadowy view of the side of one of these guys' faces. Right. I thought that that was some nice ominous foreshadowing right there. Although, again, these delivery trucks are not exactly soundproof. Yeah, you would think, again, one of our consistent (laughs) gripes, the varying audibility of walkers throughout this season, that you would think that if there are, like, 20 of these zombies inside one of these semi-trucks, like, I don't know who, if you have or who out there has, if you've ever been next to the back of a semi-truck, that's not, it's not a thick door, nor is it sealed by any, by any means. There are some scenes in The Walking Dead, I can think of a few when they're out in the woods, and they can hear a walker that is not even yet within sight, right? And then they're talking and they're like, I think he's getting closer. And then when convenient, you like see a very tight close up on like the main character and then just out of frame a zombie like crashes in. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't hear at all. Which I believe happened when Rick was tracking these zombies down through Alexandria at the yeah. end of the episode. Right. <laughs> just like immediately off screen one like falls onto him. Yeah. So I'm curious how this would have been better for you, how it would have made more sense for this season to have come to an end. Honestly, if like one of our characters made a compromised choice. If Glenn's anger had gotten the better of him and he just killed Nicholas, Mm -hmm. if Sasha in her rage and at Father Gabriel's begging for it had had killed him, Mm -hmm. if Rick had done something a little more fascist, basically, around his proving his worth in, in this meeting. It's like one of those little things that makes, would bring to light all these nuanced questions that we've been being asked about these characters throughout the season if just one of them resulted in a nuanced answer rather than like, no, they're all still essentially good, competent people who know what's best for everyone and should have just been listened to the entire time already. I don't think that that answer is as compelling as an answer that that makes you question how you feel about these guys. I agree. I would have liked that too. I think that that would have been more in keeping with what was happening to them throughout this season, right? They were And that's, that's the other mentally. thing. It would be in keeping with the tonal arc of the season and the tonal arc of their characters. Right. As opposed to what did happen, which was for them to all independently make these very correct moral choices. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously. Right. In a way that narratively underscored the wrongness of the group decision-making process happening around them. Yeah. It was very tidy. I, I'll give you that. I think if I had my choice as to which character that would have been, it probably would have been Glenn who... Yeah, that would have been a great, yeah, a crazy moment for Glenn if he had just, if his anger had gotten the better of him. Yeah. If Nicholas, who not a moment earlier had left him to die by, by the hand of zombies, who he had seen his friend ripped apart by fault of Nicholas's own cowardice, of Nicholas who tried to frame him, if all those things going for him out in the woods with no witnesses, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah. I mean, that would hugely complicate Glenn's character. Yeah. And even if the show just never acknowledged that again, every time you saw him in the future, this good guy, this this rock who's done everything right, you would know this horrible secret about him. 
those kind of choices would be the, the thing that would make this show darker. Yes, more unpleasant, but more unpleasant in a different way. Not more unpleasant in the sense of like more people having their guts ripped out of them while they're still alive, but more mm-hmm. unpleasant in like this is a world that makes good people do bad things even in situations where maybe isn't the most necessary thing to do, you know? Well, I guess the the Conquer as the title for this last episode implies that Rick and company have conquered the Alexandrians in a way with their way of life. Way of life. Yeah, I guess so. I will say though I though I was disappointed by the ending of this of this season. <laughs> I can't say that I truly expected more. Uh, the show remains something that I will continue watching perennially and continue rolling my eyes at its inability to make real big choices other than killing off people occasionally. That being said, this has been one of my favorite stretches of episodes. And to be fair, this show is better now than it has been in the past. I don't know if I would say it's best. I don't know if the show ever gets better than the pilot, which is amazing. But this has been a great run of episodes, and I'm enjoying it now more than I certainly have in the last few seasons. And I look forward to seeing the next season. I think that this facility that they're in is interesting, and this threat outside is also interesting. Uh, we'll see what the show does to push these things together and, and continue to push these characters into interesting places. I can't say that over the course of this season, the characters were not pushed two interesting places, which I guess is, is all I ask. Here's my prediction for season, I don't know, 8, 9, 10. Uh, Lilith grows up to be a warrior who eventually battles Arya Stark. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, well, uh, great talking to you, Chris. Uh, hopefully we can do this again in, I don't know, what, October when it starts up again? Yeah, usually around Halloween. Yeah. I will plug that I am tapped to be the Game of Thrones spoiler host. That should be coming back in a week or two. That's going to be me and Slate copy editor and religion editor Miriam Cruel uh, doing that one. And hopefully we'll have a few guests on as the season progresses. So if there are any Game of Thrones fans out there who want me to focus on specific things or want there to be a, a specific drive or question or thing to be looking for, in this season of Game of Thrones, which I also enjoy a lot in a great deal of the same ways that I enjoy this show, yes, come find me and yell at me on Twitter or send an email to my Slate account. Uh, I'm at Say What Again. Again. Not two agains. <laughs> Not two agains. Yes. Just, just one again. at Say What Again. Well, as you can guess by my Arya Stark illusion, I am also a Game of Thrones watcher. I think I've said that I have time for one show at a time. In my life, that's, and so, that's your that's your spring show. Maybe well, hopefully I don't know. we'll have you have you on for an episode. Yeah, perhaps. But if not, then for sure I will be emailing you or calling you or slacking you with uh, suggestions or questions. I'm sure because if there's a lot to talk about with The Walking Dead, then there's just too much to talk about with Game of Thrones. Slack it up, bro. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our raps about The Walking Dead, and uh, we'll see you later in the year. Bye, everybody.